This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Lindsay Hine, and you're listening to episode 45. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Demi Knight Clark. Demi is the founder and CEO of She Built This City, which is a really cool organization. Demi is a residential construction industry executive for over 20 years. And her vision and She Built This City's vision is to empower girls and women choosing to enter the workforce with construction trade skills and fearless maker spaces. They do this through after-school programs, camps, workshops, and women-focused career fairs and conferences. As the only woman in the room much of her career and seeking out those situations, Demi is passionate about advocating for equal representation at the table in all things, from boardrooms to sports endeavors. She's also the owner of Knight Clark Collective, a boutique consulting firm servicing all industries, primarily construction, and an avid Wadi Inc. hit squad Ironman triathlete. She's a mountain climber, a marathoner, and she's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. After she was accepted to Yale School of Management Global Executive Leadership Programs, she basically said no more excuses, and that's when she started She Built This City. This is a great conversation with Demi. She's so motivating and has some powerful things to say. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you do, please consider leaving the Illuminate podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you are listening on. We'd love to grow this show. And that's one of the best ways new listeners can find their way to this show. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts in the Sandy Boy Productions podcast network. I'll have another with Lindsay Hine, a podcast where I interview runners and the Up and Running podcast, a podcast where we are bringing you all the news in elite and professional distance running hosted by Lauren Flores and Abby Stanley. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Demi Knight Clark. Well, today on the Illuminate podcast, I'm really excited to welcome Demi Clark to the show. Welcome to the podcast, Demi. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, you just mentioned you're in your Airstream. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, so for She Built the City, our nonprofit, which empowers women of all ages from 9 to 17 for our Builder Girls and Explorer Girls, introducing them to foundational hammer and drill skill concepts, as well as women... Uh, getting them connected into the workforce. Uh, we, COVID hit us just like anyone else. So we can't convene. We aren't in uh, classrooms or workshops. So had this brilliant idea to go buy an Airstream. We have a 1975 Airstream Argosy. It's about a 45-year-old camper that we have here. And it's going to be, well, it's in the midst of being outfitted to become our mobile tool lab for the summer. So we're hoping to get it out on the road here in Charlotte to communities and employers and have hosting workshops as of uh, early July. Wow, that's so cool. I uh, I could just picture having one of those in my backyard and how much my kids would just think it was like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, you should talk to my teenagers who think it's not so cool. <laughs> but that's a different age, right? Uh, they, they're like, wow, that's a lot of work. But Yes. I don't know if I would tell everybody to go buy a 1975 Airstream, but yes, Airstreams <laughs> are a whole lot of fun. Oh, that's so great. So you mentioned the other day, though, were you? what were you guys doing? Were you handing out PPE masks? I felt like you yes. were involved in that in some way. Yes, I am a tough one to get a hold of. So I'm terrible on calls and uh, making my meeting times and appointment times because we're all over the place. And hopefully that just doesn't mean, oh, you're so busy. It's more of there's so much of a need, I think, in every city. Again, I'm here in Charlotte and 
uh, we were in the, so the, to back up as to why I would be 3D printing anything. So our organization, uh, I've been in construction and in home building, really residential home building for 20 plus years. So most of my career, and I just was the only woman in the room most of the time. And that wasn't because I didn't have phenomenal male allies and bosses. It just wasn't as much of an interest for a while there. And then it just was harder to get them into operator roles. So uh, it's a passion point of mine. But for that younger generation, so the girls that we work with in our Explorer Girls programs, which is nine to 12 year olds, uh, not only do we, and also the middle school girls, so our Builder Girls Club, we don't just put the foundational hammer and drill skill skills at work for them. Uh, while that's very important because most of them have never held a drill in their life and it's incredibly empowering and leads to other things in leadership, uh, as, along with building things, there's also the future proofing, I call it, of our trade. So we need by 2028, I think it's 4 million trade jobs, and many of those are going to be in technology. So 3D printing has already come into the sphere. Uh, they're, they're 3D printing hose brackets and pipe components and doorknobs and door handles and flower boxes. Ultimately, we're going to be 3D printing homes. So long and short, to get back to printing PPE uh, for COVID, we were already starting to introduce the concepts of 3D with our girls. So we had 3D printers. Uh, now, once COVID-19 hit, there was a PPE shortage two months ago, and I started – the 3D community is very small. People will share files. It's very open source. And there was these acceptable files uh, from doctors in Europe, from the Prusa approved designs, and then hospitals got on board. And so we just started printing some of the files on our own and it gained some momentum. We were giving them to nurses and uh, frontline workers. And Lowe's asked us, who's a partner of ours, as well as another technology company, uh, Avid Exchange. And the Urban League said, hey, we have a facility. If we can socially distance, uh, we can certainly put these together with a few volunteers. Uh, so we, we all ganged up. Uh, ultimately, there are 75 to 80 printers in the field printing both ear savers for N95 masks and the headgear components for uh, the face shields. And then we have a laser cutter at the Urban League where we are cutting the PVC shield film um, from a company called Piedmont Plastics here in Huntersville. So it's like this huge community kind of coming together of stuff and then of, of time value of money resources. And I think as of our last count yesterday, we just dropped a thousand uh, face shields off and uh, uh Ear savers off to Atrium Health and their distribution center. I think it's been about 3,000 shields and ear savers that we've produced in not too much time. It's about 30 to 45 days. Wow, that's fascinating because I think so many of us have wondered, like, why can't we get more PPE just made? Like, why aren't these other companies just making mm -hmm. it? But it sounds like there's a lot more to making it than a lot of us probably realize. There is, and there's just so many different grades of quality. We were lucky to have Lowe's as a partner who could really vet out with some of their big conversation, uh, large company, uh, uh, the, the people they're connected to is, is tremendous. And so they had some ins with Dremel uh, as well as, who was already in with many of the hospitals. Dremel is a huge producer of 3D materials and and also, we have Dremel Digilab 3D printers that were given to us by Lowe's, uh, which is just phenomenal. They're very, very uh, high output printers that are tremendous. Um, and they had dealt with the hospital system. So we were able to get files that were even more advanced, that were accepted by hospitals, and also uh, fairly easy to print with the, the least amount of what's called filament, which is basically the printer paper for a 3D printer, is a, is a spool of 3D filament. So we were able to be very efficient, which is, uh, that's definitely the Lowe's way, is how can we most efficiently do this from a material standpoint? And then also, is this widely acceptable from the, the true grade medical facilities who would really need these? That is so cool. And I imagine, I think a lot of people are right now kind of struggling with like a little bit of a purpose as things are kind of on hold, at least in my own life, I've kind of felt like everything's paused, you know, no in-person events and things like that. And I'm assuming that probably gives you a really big sense of fulfillment. It really does. I mean, especially when we hear from the frontline nurses or doctor's offices, we, we had a lot of doctor's offices and eye care facilities and smaller firms reach out saying, listen, we understand that the hospitals have the need. They have these these influxes of patients coming through, but we're also starting to reopen our facilities mm -hmm. for emergency, like dentists, emergency uh, root canals, and we have nothing. I mean, literally nothing. So 
just to hear how appreciative they were that because they didn't expect anything they're they didn't classify themselves as people who necessarily were you know at the front of this effort of need and of course they are to us so uh yeah definitely you can lay your head on the pillow at night and say we did something pretty good today that's so cool. Well, I want to get to know you and a little bit more about She Built This City on the show today. So um, I would love for you to kind of share with the listeners how you got involved in the construction industry in the first place. Great question. Uh, so this was 2003, and I had onboarded in technology in Washington, D.C. out of school. So I graduated in 1999. I won't take you through the long story of my life, but uh, I was PR and, and marketing, but also uh, put into these roles that were ahead of my time. So I remember I had to go out for trade shows to California and pitching this technology on CEOs. And I, these were the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, not actually him, but his equivalents in 2003. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize how big of a deal that was. I just thought, okay, I've got to go to work. And it's these small startup firms, these venture capital firms that I was representing. So it, it taught me well to be scrappy. Mm -hmm. And then my husband and I moved uh, due to his job down to Charlotte. And I had an opportunity to get into home building. The first uh, people hiring that I was interviewing with were in the residential home building sector. So I onboarded in a more called traditionally female role in marketing. And then immediately I said, wow, I, I, I noticed that it was male dominated and it wasn't what really made me choose what I chose in terms of wanting to go into a certain direction. But I've always been scrappy. I've always been, uh, I was title nine in sports. So many of the times I was the only girl on the team. Uh, I had really great mentors in my life of a military family that was very genderless from day one. That to me, it was just a challenge. It was to say, okay, I want to go and be a division president or be in an operator role. And if I'm the only woman, so be it. But hopefully uh, it was representation before I knew what that kind of term was. We weren't using those terms back then. And I just got So I started managing cities and managing departments, especially in the downturn. So wow. that's kind of how I onboarded in. Yeah, but I tell women that all the time who are like, well, you know, I'm in HR or I'm in sales. I'm in, again, you know, somewhat historically classified as female bent, you know, that, that tends to be more filled with with females than males. Not to say there aren't great males in those sides of the profession, but uh, and it's it's a little more of a barrier to get them into operational roles unless you get your MBA. So I, I really wanted to bust that wide open and say it's all about how scrappy you can be and how good of a leader you turn yourself into in terms of people leadership. Okay, the term scrappy. I love that. And I was just thinking about this on my run today about the transition professionally for me, at least when I learned to not say not apologize all the time, you know, and to not like start a sentence like, I know you're really busy, but I'm wondering if kind of deal. And I've just been thinking a lot about how we need to really like teach our younger generation to get rid of that kind of vocabulary from the start. Because the second I see an email or something like that from somebody, I think, oh, they're young. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so they've definitely been conditioned, right? Conditioned, I, yeah. Yeah, I call that the comma, sla comma butt syndrome because uh. uh, I've taught that with women working for me of saying, calling them out privately, not publicly and shaming them, but calling them out and saying, next time I hear you speak, I want you to take everything from that sentence after the comma and the butt, mm. and then just start with that part of the sentence. So mm -hmm. whether it's, I'm sorry, or like you said, I know you're busy, but you know, everything that mattered in that sentence was what you said after that. So everything else gave the caveat of power to someone else. Mm -hmm. So take that out and just ask your direct ask. And don't worry about having a smile on your face or how you carry, because there's just so much pressure on women of like, I remember back when I was a young manager, uh, I thought I had to please everybody. And that was also going into meetings and I would bring the donuts and then I would clean up after the meeting. And then I would make sure the conference room was, was spiffy for the next people. And it's like, I'm not your mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think mid thirties, I learned like, stop doing, I mean, everyone should do that. Everyone that, you know, so that was more, I transitioned into, okay, guys, the meeting's over. Okay. Everyone, you know, I'm even using gender classifying terms. Uh, let's clean up the conference room. So I think it's just that, um, we're, it's not brainwashing. We're just so conditioned to do it without even thinking about it. Yes. Yeah. So 
how did you learn to be scrappy? Like, I know you said you kind of were thrown into those roles, but what were some things that taught you if I'm going to get, you know, ish done, uh, I need to roll up my sleeves and be a little scrappy. Sure. I, I had some great mentors. I sought out some female mentors because they were rare in my industry. I worked for a great company who their culture was uh, there were sayings inside the company like do more with less. So less overhead or take a resource away and try to do it without money or try to do it without people. Try to do it anyway. How would you solve this problem? And, you know, that was before all these startups who think it's really cool to do that now. And it's really all of these management books. It was just a foundation foundational concept of scaling a business. And so I think it was a combination of those two things of the culture of the companies. And that's kind of a home building ethos, like in residential, the publicly traded builders are definitely of that mindset of you've got to have results. There's no weather report. You know, if there's COVID, you still have numbers that you have to produce for uh, your shareholders in, in Wall Street. So what are we going to do to make those numbers get scrappy, you know, get idea driven and don't spend any money to do it. We only have so much money in the marketing pot. Uh, and then having mentors who challenged me as well. So I remember one of my favorite mentors who I just talked to the other day. He, he's been a mentor for probably 15 years now. He ended up being my, he was a regional president and then a, also a division president for me later. Um, so directly influencing me in my leadership career. And he was always challenging me with just get in the trenches, get in the, the middle of the pain, no matter what level of leadership you're in so that you understand from the front lines that you're not only being transparent and listening uh, so that you can feel the pain a little bit without having to necessarily roll up your own sleeves and solve it yourself for them, uh, which isn't teaching anybody anything, but also you're in the trenches. So just get in and dig the ditch. There's so many companies that have leaders who I, I meet them today. I'm in my 40s now. So a lot of us are in those, uh, the, you know, second tier, third mm -hmm. tier management positions, if not CEO jobs. And uh, sometimes it's it's easy. It's kind of like undercover boss. It's easy to be two or three steps removed from the pain and make really high level 30,000 foot decisions. But I think that's one hallmark of me is I never take myself too far away from the pain because I feel like that's how I'm going to lose my scrappiness. That's so good. That's so good. Okay. So you find yourself being one of the only women in the room in the construction industry. And what does that make you want to do next? Oh, well, you know, I remember thinking at first it was a bit of a novelty, you know, as I got into my young management career, and this was easily 16, 17 years ago, I started kind of going up the ladder, the typical corporate ladder, and there were less and less women as I got farther away from sales or farther away from marketing. Um, there definitely was less women. I started to notice and it was a bit of a novelty at first, like, oh, I'm a unicorn, you know, <laughs> that's kind of cute. You know, it's like, you, you get the pat on the head or you get the, wow, you know, you'll get noticed. Um, but then after a while, it was, it, it was two things. It was for one, okay, th this doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem right. Like how will, I have two daughters. So how on earth are they ever going to get into an industry? Not just construction. There's multiple industries that have um, more men than women in the 50, 50 range. Uh, so how am I doing anything legacy wise? If, if you're spending most of your time at a workplace, right away from your home, mm -hmm. there's always that mom guilt too, for the women. Um, it, what is the legacy that I tell my children as to why I spent my time away from them? So there was a bit of that. And then there was also, there was certainly a tendency to feel like I had to scream or shout my perspective. And whereas when you have a representation in the room, both from a diversity standpoint and inclusion standpoint, as well as a gender standpoint, gender identity, uh, it's just easier to get points that you know are the right decision to make, but you need a group consensus. It's just harder to do that when you're the only one in the room. It's harder to get across a perspective without sounding like you're grandstanding or um, unfortunately, sometimes getting uh, the ultra feminist card like, mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, you're so strong about that opinion, Demi, that, you know, you're just playing the feminist card again or the ultra feminist if you're really trying to stand up for women. So I remember trying to water that down a bit. You know, again, young manager, young mom, um, you, it's kind of an identity crisis in my early mm -hmm. 30s. It's like, oh, you know, I better be happy face and more pleasing and neutral. And, uh, you know, I just didn't have enough uh, 
my sea legs under me, my skis under me. I was, I was too far over my skis for management. Now you put me in those seats and I'm very easily like, okay, I want to hear from multiple people in the room. Um, tell me, tell me what you're feeling. And it needs to be a diverse bunch. It just can't be, it can't be all women either. You know, a lot of times people are like, Oh, do you want all female, uh, plumbing crews or wouldn't that be a cool marketing concept? And I say, no, it wouldn't. (laughs) It's a novelty. Like I don't need women to be used as a unicorn, like, cool novelty that you can have a marketing concept around. We just want to be equal at the table. That's all we've ever asked for. So no, I, that is not what I want either. I don't want to go run some all women firm either. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love that. Um, so when did you decide to pursue She Built This City? It was last year. So I took a sabbatical, uh, January of last year, so a year and a half now. I can't believe how time flies by. So fast. I had the opportunity to go to Yale. Uh, They have a tremendous program in their school of management, and I was able to go to Yale for a year and also consult. And it was getting out of that kind of traditional home building ecosystem of I love the people inside. They're my forever friends. Uh, But at the same time, it's a lot of the same ideas, right? So it's like anything else. You've got to get outside of your comfort zone or you've got to get get with people you've never dealt with before who don't know your industry at all and surround yourself with those people. And sometimes you're going to find some really awesome ideas and solutions. And sometimes they just push you. And that's really what happened as I had people from all over the world, many men. um, There are only six women in my class out of 50. And so a lot of them were men. I like to call them 2020 men. Sometimes people are like, oh, they're just Renaissance men. I'm mm-hmm. like, no, they're just the 2020 male that I would hope that every man would be mm-hmm. in terms of saying like, hey, what have you thought about this? Have you, They weren't mansplaining me. They weren't, you know, telling me what to do. They were just saying, can you turn this on its ear? And She Built the City was one of those things. Many of them heard me talking about it that I had, I knew that my impact was, I, I love this industry. I didn't want to get out of it. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to impact it more than just trying to get seven to 10 women a year into leadership positions. When I was in the seat, I could do just about that. And that was my limitation. And so they pushed me to say, would you just, so what now, what would you just start this nonprofit and see where it goes? Cause I had all these barriers. I was like, Oh, I don't know how to file articles of incorporation. I don't know how to run a nonprofit. I don't know how to go get money. I don't know how to find employees after you get money. And they were like, blah, 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 just do it. <laughs> If you are this convicted about it with the energy that you have, it's all going to fall into place. And then also, you know, I had a lot of offers of let me connect you with people to help you with this. So I did it. And that was uh, really once it was all said and done, because um, I talked about it, I did file for articles of incorporation back in August, but then we really got our tax exempt status in December. So a lot of it was more like website and kind of really part-time getting stuff together from August to December. And we really, I I put my pedal to the metal in December and that was five months ago. And here we are today. It's just been phenomenal. That's so, so cool. I mean, I imagine a couple things. One you have a career and a successful job. It's probably really scary to say, okay, I'm going to like move to this nonprofit sector, this nonprofit world to pursue a dream so that I can leave that legacy behind, like you mentioned. But also like there are so many nonprofits out there. Uh, one, this is very unique, a very unique nonprofit, but I'm sure that the mindset of like, nonprofit competition might be kind of hard. Like there's so many places people can give their money and their time to. So did, did those thoughts come into play at all when deciding to move forward? For uh, Yes. Yes to all. Uh, the short answer is absolutely. And, and I think that's fairly normal. You know, again, in, in this side of the arena, I'm certainly trying to stay as humble as possible. We've had some serious wins in relationships and, um, as well as uh, uh, we've had some financial windfalls that have been great in terms of funding and sponsorships. And now we've, we've really upped our game to do some match uh, planning and programming, but I, I have to stay humble in what I don't know. I'm not, you know, well-versed in the grant area. There's certainly spheres that are of need and different tiers of need 
thanks to the COVID-19 world that we fall under certain things and not others. And, you know, that's been the biggest transition point for me from the for-profit life and tactics to nonprofit life is there's certainly things that I can bring over. And people have certainly asked me that have been career nonprofit saying like, hey, how do I cold call a company or how do I better engage some of these corporate entities? Because I sat in that seat as the founder for some uh, organizations there for many but at the same time, there is also a lot of knowledge that's and and uh, kind of bureaucracy and then also a little bit of politicking that you need to follow some rules. And me being scrappy, I'm also a just absolute steamroller when it comes to action. And so it's, it's teaching me a lot about saying there's a time and a place for everything and you don't have to do everything today. Like mm-hmm. there are timetables mm-hmm. that are definitely not on your schedule and just make the connection. And so I've really kind of that's just been in the last week or so, um, stepped back from the steamroller me of wanting these metrics that are just, to me, it's, it's the driven athlete of me that's looking at the top of the summit to say, you need a carrot dangled, right? To say, can you go raise another hundred thousand dollars? Or can you go find the funding for impact for another thousand women? Or can you get this Airstream updated in 30 days? And so it's almost like a personal goal, but I also have to watch that in this world because sometimes that can be like, oh my gosh, it looks like grandstanding or it looks like you're, you know, somewhat greedy. Like you're going for more than what you need right now. so there's this kind of fine balance, right? Of uh, And also just don't burn out. I mean, that's just basic. Yeah. What's your biggest tip for cold calling, depending, regardless of what someone might be cold calling about? <laughs> you know, if this is what I would do in for-profit world. I was always very, very give to get and then also very value-driven relationship. I have learned in my 40s is to just get to know people and be curious, like always be curious. So I never contact people. I just gave this advice to a, a friend in, in the business of, of nonprofits the other day who wanted to get in with a couple different companies. And I said, first and foremost, do you think that company is correctly aligned? Just like a grant, when you go for a grant application, they have very specific rules and and guidelines as to this is what we fund, this is typically the organization we're looking for, and these are the missions that we align with. You need to do the same thing for for for-profit companies. So, you know, Bank X, for me, I'll just keep it in, in framework of me. First, she built this city. We have workforce development programs and we are educational for kids. So there's two fairly distinct categories we fall into. So I could go to, I'm in a banking town at Charlotte. There's six major banks here that fund quite a few projects. Um, but at the same time, they all have different flavors of what they like to fund and they all have different cycles of that. So you have to do your homework. And I haven't, I will not pick up the phone and cold call bank X. I will figure out a way once I've done that research and I just finished doing that of it was actually a smaller bank who's kind of getting their feet in the door of this town and they have a technology side to them that is really of note as well as their corporate giving has a tendency to swing to girls um, and technology. And so there's a there's definite alignment there. Excuse me. Um, Rather than just a generic, we give out, you know, X, Y, Z amount of money of grants a year. And here's the application. And maybe you can maybe you can get some of that piece of the pie. I look for relationships. Uh, You know, one of the other great examples that I have is and oh, by the way, I won't just cold call them. I'll figure out a way to um, immerse with their programs of asking what they need from me. Mm -hmm. So either I know some of the employees thanks to LinkedIn or I know some of the parents of girls and I can say, hey, listen, let's get your girls into some of these programs. They find some success and find the love. Like you have, I tie everything to energy. So rather than cold calling, and I'm not saying cold calling can't work for you. Um, For me, I want people to fall in love with what we do. And I don't want people to fund us unless they're in love with it. You know, there's no Mm -hmm. pressure because of COVID that they have to say, like, I just did something on Facebook funding this morning. So very basic of we have we need an awning. It's $152 for a Sunwave awning on Amazon. But those $152 when I need that every day adds up. And I put it out there saying, like, listen, (laughs) I'm not just going to flat ask you for money. 
I will build you something and you tell me what you want me to build you and you go from there. And if you give us $25, we'll figure it out. And I want to get your kids involved too. And within an hour and a half, we had our $152. And I think it's being at that grace and ground level of just talking to people. And that turns into money or it turns into volunteering over time. Um, our other example is like for our Builder Girls Club, we don't just flat ask for money. I don't say, hey, looking for a sponsorship. Yes, we have that on our website. There's clearly ways you can sponsor. But what I want them to do first is come see what we do and come meet us and say, oh, we absolutely jive with the energy that Demi has or her staff or her sponsor teachers or look at the impact with these girls. If they see the impact of a girl who picks up a power driver for the very first time and is just the cape she's terrified of it and the cape grows out her back after she finishes and she's like wonder woman saying what next i think that's what it is in today's environment of if you're looking for funding for anything whether you're in sales whether you're looking for sponsorship for a podcast or whether you're looking for money for your nonprofit you've got to start with a relationship and the money will follow and so i i, I guess i call that a give to get but i also don't want people to think that i'm talking to that i'm just being friends with them or sure. trying to align with them. I'm looking for money ultimately, but um, it, I think it just organically happens. And that's our, all of our primary funders have ended up that way. They've either just fallen in love after giving $25 for something or their daughter's coming to an event or them coming to sweat equity work on my part, just doubling over to do things for other people. I think you ask, what can I do for you? And then also uh, find out, do your research and find out if their missions are aligned before you ever contact them. I think that's the biggest, when I was sitting in the seat and then I'll shut up. When I was sitting in the seat of, of running uh, organizations or departments, nothing drove me crazier than when somebody would call me for to sign up for a service or to advertise or to do whatever without doing their homework. The people that I would actually call back were the ones who actually figured out what made me tick. They took the time to find out that I was a triathlete and said something about nutrition or, you know, and it didn't have to be personal to me or my company. Um, and I think we've kind of gotten away from that in, in such a curated world, right, with Instagram and TikTok and us being able to have these geo targets on Facebook to find out what we love. Um, the research is there. Just do it to find out if you truly want someone to use your product or service or give you money, then find out more about them. Yeah. And so these, you know, these relationships, maybe they don't turn into donors or sponsors, but maybe they do. And that's that's what is important like that that and, and if they don't turn into donors or sponsors it's not that that relationship still isn't important yeah and i everybody that i ask if it's something where i will have conversations with anyone no time is wasted to me yeah and i've had plenty of conversations in the last five months that were you know what i love your energy i mean it's infectious you know we're in budget constraints right now and i say you know what? I just loved meeting you. I love knowing you. And also if you have two or three people that you feel like I need to know, just let me know. And people will always give you the sweat equity of a referral. You know what I mean? So I think that's probably my best advice to people who maybe sales is not their gig. Like it's, it's such a normal conversation for me to be kind of income generating activities. Um, but that's not natural for so many people uh, is just sit there and make it where people's shoulders can come away from their ears by saying, you might know someone that I need to know. And I think LinkedIn is a brilliant place to do that. I, I have more success on LinkedIn of people saying, you need to know Demi. Like, again, I cannot say enough for profit or nonprofit. If you have energy and you are passionate about whatever you're talking about, whether that's a sport, whether that's a nonprofit, whether that's your company, whether that's your kids or something that you are moved by, People love hope and they love energy. And if you can channel those two things for someone, they will want you to know people. And that's what I've been lucky with. And I say luck. I'll take that back. It's not luck. It's people just wanting to be good stewards and connecting each other. So I try to do that for other people. I'm always thinking when I meet someone, like even with you, I'll be like, okay, who would be great for her podcast? Mm -hmm. You know, Who would be great to kind of back you on this? Uh, it's just the right thing to do is connecting, especially women. You know, we're great connectors on the whole. And I think for us to get to 50-50 in so many of these different um, 
industries. So, you know, STEM is like 30% women now. I think manufacturing the data is about 24%. Construction's way behind. We're at 9% and 3% to the traditional trades. So for the ones that want to get to 50-50, it's going to take us too. It's not just finding male allyship. It's also us banding together and saying, you know what, I'm going to do my best to connect so-and-so to jobs. And I think you find that in the political arena. You find that in a lot of the minority arenas is when they band together. Um, the most success happens. So I think that's the same here. Yeah, I I think that it's so easy for people to take the, the relationship out and get strict straight to business because they want to move on to the next thing. And I think that's a really important part of this conversation that I hope people take with them is that relationship first. And that I mean, that's life too. That's your family. That's your friends like yeah. relationship first. Now, real question, though, are you on TikTok? <laughs> Yeah, that's I was just talking about that. We were my ears burning or yours. I don't know. Uh, my teenagers like refuse. We watch TikTok. I feel like every night because it's hilarious. It is my funny. kids have those compilations on the TV. They refuse to let me get a she built the city TikTok. So I guess once <laughs> I have a social media coordinator or intern who's a little younger, they were like, no, that's an absolute no. And they're usually very supportive. And from a personal standpoint, absolutely not. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I just got on TikTok and um, I had had my dad do a video with me yesterday and it was really funny. That's why I asked. Um, yeah. I, I might have to do it on the DL. Do it on the DL. Don't... Yeah. Your kids are older though. So they have more opinions about that kind of thing. My kids are still so young that they like, they'll jump in a video with me and think it's fun, you know? <laughs> Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Minor teenagers. So they easily are the first one. Like the, they lurk me on Instagram. So my personal account, if I ever post something that is like mom ish that doesn't tag them, <laughs> post a picture of them, they will call me out so fast. Yeah. It's great. It's oh, awesome. well, speaking of kids, you mentioned the legacy you wanted to leave behind with your girls. And I wonder what are some messages? So I have all boys, you have all girls. Um, I just wonder what are some messages we should be sending to our girls and our boys? Should they all look the same? Um, just about this 50-50 that we're trying to reach. That's a really, really good question. And it's a very loaded question in that we, we could talk for hours of what we could do. I think some simple steps, depending on ages of kids. So I'll classify it to a couple ages. The younger they are, the more you need to treat them exactly the same. You know, so I get really... Um, I have a very strong opinion about colorful toys. Uh, I love to, and this is part and parcel from my own children, as well as from uh, the teenagers that I work with in the, the middle school age. Uh, I think as young kids, you know, the toys are clearly certain colors. Uh, I wanna see, and this is some of the conversations I'm having with manufacturers of the tool sets being things like neon green. Um, there's one specific tool tool provider who has neon green and I said, you're onto something, you need to stick with this. This is what it is for kids. Like pink washing of tools especially really bothers me. Um, I love it if girls love pink. I also love it if boys love pink. Um, so, you know, I think that's something to for parents to just notice. Don't mm -hmm. call it out in front of the kids because on the flip side of that, the beautiful thing about the youngest generations coming out is they don't know differences. And they're even getting better about uh, non-binary and having other gender classifications than female and male, which I think is phenomenal, is for them to just literally see everyone as everything. Um, and that's my personal opinion. But unless we call it out for them, which sometimes we as parents are conditioned to do based on how we were raised a little bit differently. You know, again, I was the only girl on, on title nine sports until I was 12 years old. So my frame of reference of childhood was being different from boys, you know, just to like, what I would say is I hear a lot of like the energy of boys is more than the energy of girls. Mm. And I, I just challenge that of like, well, are we taking our girls outside just as much? Or are we letting them play in their rooms? And for sure, uh, you want to facilitate and, and foster whatever creative energy they have. But I'm just trying to get, especially in COVID life, get both sets of those kids out into a workshop, use their hands whenever possible and get them off the computer. Computers are great. Laptops, digital, everything is wonderful. They're going to save the world with many 
any of those techniques. However, we've gotten so far away from solving things on their own by giving them challenges in the workshop um, or just using their hands. If that's gardening, if that's being in a workshop and building with tools, introduce both genders to that because they have definitely gotten away from that. So that's at a young age, I think. And then as they get older, that's when the classification started. The classifications really start in high school. I started seeing that with my own girls and then other families is the STEM piece. You have to make very clear choices between art or STEM. My, my 16 year old is a great example. She is, she loves engineering and she also is a phenomenal artist. She loves both. She doesn't associate any more love in any other direction. She's going through college searches now and uh, is being guided into those choices. So I was very strong of opinion to say, I don't want you to give up either one in your classwork. You shouldn't have to give up your humanities to just take engineering and you shouldn't have to give up engineering and STEM to just take art classes. So, um, we kind of stood our ground with the school system, but that's not everybody. Sometimes parents just say, okay, well, that's your only choice mm -hmm. and you have to the other. So that's huge in the teenage set is so that they don't have to make those choices. And again, I think that's gender nonspecific, but more girls like the art side. And I think that's how we're getting them out of STEM is they have to make this choice. The middle school girls they're the ones who are the pleasers. And so I think, you know, moms, I have an eighth grader who's graduating. So technically she's almost a high schooler here, but you know, to watch two go through middle school and all the you have to go through. And now working with Builder Girls Club, um, it's just such a transition in life, you know, from a hormone perspective, from a, how they're accepting the world perspective, how they're judged, how they um, are trying out their confidence and or lack of confidence um, and all of this digital stuff they go through and bullying and everything else. It's a lot to take on as a 13 or a 12 to 14 year old. And I think the girls have more pressure on them from a physical standpoint of how they look and how they put themselves out to the world, as well as uh, what they choose to please others, whether that's boys or whether that's their parents. And so I think from a parental standpoint, Again, fostering these things that are in no drama situations and then letting them explore in full color. Um, it doesn't have to be glitter. They love, the girls that we work with absolutely adore neon. They, you know, it doesn't have to be pink, that's for sure. It's neon green, neon yellow, neon orange. I think uh, Krylon, I think I, I tag them in every post possible because I'm always spray painting something. And it's because of those girls. They were the first ones to be like, just put a can of spray paint in our hands. And I think that's the, the last thing I'll say is, this is gender nonspecific in the advice, but we are in, I, I kind of liken it to the stranger danger. You know, we're so protective of our kids that sometimes we go overboard and I'll get a lot of questions from parents of like, how young is it appropriate to put a power drill in a kid's hands or spray paint? Oh my God, they go nuts when we are able to, in a controlled environment, put a can of spray paint in their hands because they just don't get that at home. Mm -hmm. I mean, what mom is gonna be like, yeah, let's go play with spray paint today. It's just anxiety producing. So it's just getting into these environment where where these, they get a little more um, responsibility than we would typically give them. And no, they won't hurt themselves with, with adequate supervision. And no, they're not delinquents with a can of spray paint. Um, more of those kind of activities that we can foster, I think especially for girls, because it's going to get that confidence up, um, and boys too. So I, I don't know. Those are a bunch of different ideas. But uh, yeah, those are the things that I see that are commonalities as I work with families and especially with the kids themselves. Well, I think it's interesting the point you made about the you giving the I'm wondering if you got pushback from the school when you were like she's going to be able to pursue both of the passions because I I recently talked to someone about this and you know school is just like this is how we do things. These are your yeah. options and that's yeah. how the traditional school setting is and that does not set every kid up for success to pursue what they really love. Yeah, well, and that's that brings it back to the trade. So to directly answer your question, uh, we had to get creative. So we ended up, she's taking a few online classes uh, that are college level courses that are uh, able to be used as credit in her system, but she also gets dual credit for college. Mm -hmm. She doesn't feel like bandwidth wise, it's too much. That was a huge concern of mine. And she's going to do both. Um, but you're right, that's we're probably the 1% of the equation, whereas 99% of the other families, if there is privilege in the family, 
they might have had the conversation, but they probably said, hey, you know, we're just going to go with what you got status quo. If there's not privilege, you know, if it's families that are struggling or they're, they're, you know, kids school is definitely an outlet for them. They're not even asking the questions because they're just taking it as well. That's the school system. So, mm-hmm. yes, we have to address that. And then from a trades perspective, that's a whole nother ball of wax of that starts early. That starts in eighth grade with the end. I don't know where they what they call them in other states and, and districts, but I know in our district it's it's and it was in our last it was called an individual graduation plan or an IGP. And in eighth grade, they choose. Uh, what they're going into for ninth grade and really kind of a roadmap that's a skeleton roadmap for their high school. And there is a clear delineation. It's a very big appointment. Both parents are there with the, with the teenager and the guidance counselor. And you have to make the decision of four year college or undecided. And I was very adamant with my youngest saying she did it this year. And I said, you're going to pick undecided, right? Cause she clearly, she does not know. She's like, I have no idea what I want to do. And I said, you're undecided. And she said, Oh, they're going to talk you out of that because that sounds like you've given up on life. And sure enough, we got into that conversation and I said, she's undecided. And the guidance counselor, who is very nice, but is so conditioned to say, well, you really, you know, you're going to miss out on all this communication from these colleges. And it was really, a, they pushed us into saying four year degree. And I stood my ground. I said, listen, this is why we don't have kids in the trades because they are st- stigmatized against making this choice. Like it's, you're going to give up on life. If you say undecided, we've got to get away from saying that a four year college degree is everything. We're seeing that right now. These kids are graduating and not having jobs because of what's going on in the, in the universe and who's working is the tradespeople, the service uh, industry folks and or the essential workers who are plumbers, uh, electricians. And nobody's saying they don't have to go to school forever. I see a lot of families who are saying, you know what, if my daughter can make $50,000 a year out of the gates, mm-hmm. zero debt and travel some of the country, if not the world, take five years and do it. So many of these kids are taking gap years anyway before COVID. Why wouldn't you do that? Bank money. And if you truly want to go because you want to either own your own business or you want an advanced degree in something, go to school. Nobody's saying just because you pick the trades that you cannot go to college. Um, it's just doing it from more of a Dave Ramsey perspective or a Susie Orman perspective of doing it financially soundly rather than having this $1.6 trillion in college debt that's out there. Yeah, I think there's this like, social pressure right to go to college and do the four-year thing I mean I had it I was not a great student I didn't know what I wanted to do but I had this pressure like while my friends are going to college like I want to experience that just like everybody else but um yeah who's making fifty thousand dollars the day they graduate college anyway you know that's that's a good salary no And so, yeah, I look at, I had a great experience. I love my sorority. I I still have friends from my college days. I met my husband in college. So who knows, maybe we would not have been on that trajectory. But at the same time, yeah, there's debt involved. There's, uh, did I land the best jobs I could have right out of school? No, I did whatever I could to make it work until I found that right job. Um, But we were definitely house poor and apartment poor. Uh, Yeah, could I, if I had made some different decisions, would I have gone a different direction? In today's world, absolutely. And I think that's the opportunity that we have in the midst of a pandemic, which we would never want a pandemic to um, help the trades, you know, like nobody's asking for this pandemic, but what it's helping us get across to these families and really even career changing women who come to me and say, hey, how do I get my general contractor's license? I just got laid off. It opens up this world of possibility that is more destigmatized. I know plenty of people who own their own companies or firms in plumbing, welding, electrical, or general contracting who are doing incredibly well for themselves. And they've set up their own kids for success because they have generational wealth. And then they're also teaching their kids the same same skills. So uh, I just feel like it's the gift that keeps on giving. And we have just classified it in this kind of 80s uh, uh, you, you know, Ford Motor Company kind of old plant factory mentality. And we're aging out of the trades because of it. And it's phenomenal jobs to be had that um, unless we destigmatize de- on a grand scale, uh, we're going to not be changing the statistics. Wow. Yeah, I grew up with a dad who was a roofer. And he owned his own roofing business like my entire life. And so I'm curious... Looking back, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, my dad can build a house with his own two hands, you know? And I wish 
he would have taught my sisters and I skills. Um, and I, I think it, you know, it wasn't ill will that he didn't. He just was busy and just wasn't a thing he thought that we needed to do. But now looking back, I'm like, man, that would have been cool if my dad would have taught me how to build a picnic table, you know, something like that. So I just am curious, how do we as parents now, whether we are skilled craftsmen or not, how do we, and when do we start teaching our kids how to kind of do this like physical kind of labor as far as being able to hang up curtain rods and things like that. And that's another ears burning. Cause I had somebody say that to me this morning of like, I just want to hang my own curtain rods. And I said, well, that's just basic power, power drills. And really not even that, you know, as long as you have a Phillips and a flathead screwdriver, you can get it done. But I, it's a great question. I think it's a matter of getting outside. You know, I, I don't see many people being able to set up a mini quasi workshop in their house. It really needs to be outdoors, either in a garage or a backyard. Or if you're in an apartment, you've got to find kind of a public space that you can set up shop. Um, it's getting them outside. And that's as young as possible. I, you know, a five-year-old or a six-year-old can certainly have basic tools in their hands and adult supervision can be doing drilling. I, I've done it with them. I've, I've practiced that. So, and then it's also getting the skills yourself more often than not, it's because the parents don't have the skills. Mm-hmm. So they are afraid to try to get it into their kids' hands. Cause Hey, who wants their kids knowing more than them? I mean, I, you know, every time I have to go to my children with my tail between my legs about something internet focused, mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, this is the equivalent of me fixing the timer on the DVR for the VCR on my, for my parents in the nineties. Like it's, you just don't, it's like giving up. Um, so we need to teach them the skills first. And that's what we do with our virtual shop class. Um, we're coming up with some cool ideas of getting tools in the hands. That's the other thing is I get, you know, it's intimidating to walk into a home improvement workshop, a workout, ugh, work, a a home improvement warehouse and say like, what do I need? Mm -hmm. And they're phenomenal in helping you, but it's, it's, you have to go to 10 different aisles and then you have to kind of guess. So I I understand the barriers. It's the basics are get curious, pick a project, get started on something simple. I always say with families, when it's young kids, give them small wins. Don't tackle the Mm -hmm. she shed in the backyard as your first project. Mm -hmm. Like, do something really simple like a bee pollinator where they're super happy at looking at this little thing they built, but it also didn't wear you out, you know, from an emotional standpoint, <laughs> trying to figure out how to build it or start with the how to hang uh, drapes and get your kids involved. Say, hey, can we do this together? Because I just want to teach you how to do a power drill. Mm. And I'm telling you, those kids get the drill in their hands and it's like game over. What can we do <laughs> What can we do next? Give me another one. Um, so I think start small. And there's a lot of resources from us, uh, from, uh, and one of my partners, Lowe's, has tremendous resources on their website. And there's always the Dr. Google. You know, you, there's a ton of YouTubes out there that I guarantee you, you pick any project. There's someone who has done it, and they can tell you how to do it in like five minutes. Mm-hmm. That excites me. I have not done any kind of project like that with my boys. My dad has done a couple things with them. And one of them in particular really is, you can tell he's very interested in building things with his hands. And um, I'm going to start really small though. So I'm going to Google bee pollinator since that's what you suggested. (laughs) Well, and funnily enough, you can actually, our last virtual shop class, I'll send you the link. Oh, yay. Uh, Building a bee pollinator with uh, the Generation T virtual shop class presented by Lowe's. So we when have eight it? different. It, it's on. We do Facebook Live Tuesdays at noon, and then there's the replay through uh, YouTube. So I will send you this link. So all of our episodes are posted, and families can learn. I did a workshop one. So what do you need in a workshop? To the basics. Oh, cool. Um, first episode. So I will send that to you now. Yes. And listeners, we will put that in the show notes. That is really cool. Um, Okay. So how do we specifically, She Built This City focuses on getting girls involved um, in this type of work. How do we get our girls excited? I mean, I guess it's the same thing. If we're talking young girls, it's the same thing as getting our boys excited, right? Absolutely. Again, I think this generation, uh, certainly I am motivated to get more girls in the workplace. And that starts very young by the curiosity. But 
really this generation of kids is so digitally focused that it's any gender Mm -hmm. um, to get them again outside using their hands solving things on their own and I realize I think I think it's part and parcel and trust me I've been there I have definitely let iPads babysit my kids before (laughs) they can just do whatever for six hours so trust me this is a no judgment zone sure but it definitely has become we're so busy in other regards of our life whether that's work or other commitments that we have that this does take parental mm-hmm, time. You know, mm-hmm. this is an opportunity for you to bond, but you also need to be a part of it. So you need to be present. You can't just say, go walk into the workshop and play for six hours. <laughs> so that is something that's a commitment. You know, parents have to say like, yes, this is something I want to learn with them and or this is something I want to do with them. And so it does take a commitment. Yeah, that's definitely a barrier. That's definitely worth mentioning too. And especially right now, because I think a lot of us parents are finding ourselves really stretched for time because we're working from home with kids running around. And um, I do though, I'm sitting here imagining how much joy it would bring my two, my two little kids are really little. So they're, you know, they're one and three, but my five and seven year old, like if they were back in that back garage with my husband or myself building a bee pollinator, like they, they would think that was so cool. If we just had that hour and a half of undivided attention where we did it together, like that would bring them so much joy. And we, most of us can find that time. Yeah. And, you know, on so many levels, you're right. A, it's something where they say, I can point at that anytime I walk around in my yard to my friends, to myself and say, I built that. It's something lasting. That's a makerspace item. And then also, I promise you that it's like those moments we had as kids. They're going to remember that someday Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. say like, oh, I remember that time we built that bee pollinator. Wasn't that so much fun, mom? You know, and hopefully that leads to other projects. But yeah, it's just that the connection, you know, what we were talking about earlier, it's just human connection. Yeah. Well, Demi, one last little thing I want to touch on, and then I'll, I'll have you share how we can get involved with She Built the City. But um, you are an athlete, too. You're an Ironman finisher, soon-to-be six-star, world marathon major finisher. You've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. You've done all of these crazy things. Um, can you share with us how does that piece of your life um, how does that come I- into play in your She Built This City life? Uh, yeah, I think it's two things. I have the Teddy Roosevelt quote in my home office, the get in the arena. Um, you know, no matter what, dust yourself off. Uh, it's the people that get in the arena, and I'm doing a terrible job rephrasing the quote, that get the work done and get the results to happen is having that fearless courage. And I think that's what athletes have to do every day. Sometimes we have bad races. Sometimes we have bad training days. Sometimes we just don't want to train. We want to just not do it. And we have to do it anyway, you know, and I think it's the get in the arena. I say that to myself a lot uh, in many different places in my life right now. So I think that from one side and then also uh, just having big goals. Once I was into marathons, I was so blessed to be surrounded by so many athletes who had done way more than I had, but they were completely not competitive about it. They just did it like it was another day of, okay, I've done 42 Ironmans, fulls. I've, you know, climbed seven summits of mountains. And I think I'm just always putting something bigger out there to say, I love huge, um, seemingly undoable goals. And if I don't get it, it's okay. But we, I'd certainly failed forward to get there or you got it. And then it's like, okay, what's the next quest? Um, I ask my husband and he'd be like, oh my gosh, like, it's just, it's always something. <laughs> I think that's, that's part of the drive. Like the drive is what brings it back to She Built a City. If I wasn't an athlete, I don't think I would have the kind of drive that I do in my business life to just say, you've got, you know, this is 26.2 miles. It's not, the marathon isn't run in a day, you know, and the training isn't done in a week. You've got to stick to it, right? You don't just like throw up your hands when you don't get happy or you don't get the result you wanted. So I just think athlete life always threads into so many other parts of your life. I totally agree. How do you wake up in the morning and decide to pursue those goals, though? Are you the type of person that does like lists or do you have, you know, like habit trackers or anything like that? Or are you just like, here's my long term goal. I know what I need to do to get there. And you're just um, internally driven. I am an obsessive list maker. I'm a huge dreamer. So I will come up with some really pie in the sky 
sky kind of spaghetti on the wall concepts that have to be vetoed either by my family or people in my business life. But I'm always writing things down. I could show you notebook after notebook after notebook of really, I I always have a page for vision board. And Mm. it's funny, I've got probably 10 years of vision boards that I will say those affirmations to myself uh, in some way, shape or the form, you know, throughout the day, either in my car or when I wake up in the morning. Um, She Built the City was on there uh, in our funding goal and we made our funding goal this year uh, and now we're past it. Um, So it's funny to look back at some of my vision board goals from 10, 12 years ago, even five years ago to see it was either, it either happened or it changed to something the better. So I love it when people get really intentional about their goals and write it down. You're either going to do it and commit to it, or you find something better. That's a pivot that happens as you're either training for it or what it's going to take you in a direction you you didn't know you were going to go in. Yeah. It seems like a very common theme of people who are goal oriented that they're writing this down. I mean, I I really have been noticing that a lot lately. Uh, Well, Demi, tell us how we can connect with you. She built the city and what you all are doing. And of course we'll put the show notes to, we'll put the links to all this in the show notes. Yes, you can look online. We are very active on Instagram and Facebook. So our Instagram, I know you're going to post links, but it's she.built.city. And then uh, Facebook, I think is facebook.com slash she built the city on tech. So for the younger ones getting involved in tech. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. Happy to uh, always connect with people on LinkedIn. We have a she built the city page as well as my own personal page on Demi Knight Clark. If it's companies, always love to talk to, to companies or if it's individuals uh, from any sphere of life. So from the athlete world, from, uh, you know, how do I do this for women, you know, and something that's kind of uh, bouncing around in someone's head or even men. I have a lot of conversations with men about how to be a better ally. So feel free to reach out. Wow. Such an important conversation and important work that you are doing. I am Honored that you spent this hour with us. Good luck with your PPE um, production and everything else you guys have going on. Thank you so much, Demi. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on and good luck with your training. Keep digging. Thanks, Demi. All right. Bye. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Thank you, Demi, for coming on the show. Make sure you guys go check out She Built This City, shebuiltthiscity.org. You can find them on Instagram as well, she.built.this.city. You can find the Illuminate Podcast on Instagram. We are the Illuminate Podcast. And you can find us on Twitter. We are Illuminate underscore pod over on Twitter. And we're on Facebook as well, the Illuminate Podcast. All right, friends, thanks so much for being here. And we'll see you next week on the Illuminate Podcast.